Mindfulness Mode 197. If you have a focus and you believe in yourself, you can overcome whatever obstacles are out there. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, I'm looking for ways I can improve my show, so I'd like to ask you a huge favor. Would you fill in a three-question survey? It would really help me know what you prefer as I consider making some changes to the show format. You don't need to leave your email address. It's just a short three-question survey. I would really appreciate your help. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash survey three. Remember, mindfulness has one L. That's mindfulnessmode.com forward slash survey three. Don't spell out three. It's just just the symbol. Last time on Mindfulness Mode, I interviewed a former actress who is now a publicity expert. She knows exactly how to connect with large publications and media outlets. I've received some great feedback from this episode with Esther Kiss. It's number 196 if you haven't heard it. Today, you'll hear my guest tell how he felt like such a loser earlier in his life. He flunked out of high school and he even got fired from sweeping the floors at his father's business. Amazingly, he turned everything around and became the man people admired. A few years later, he shook up his life and turned it upside down and to the shock and amazement of his friends and family, he just changed everything. I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing about the mindfulness of today's featured guest. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 197. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am excited today. I've got Tim Laskus with us. Hey, Tim, are you in mindfulness mode? Oh, absolutely. I am pumped and ready. I couldn't be more mindful if I tried. Terrific. Tim Laskus <laughs> is trained as a clinical psychologist and holds a PhD in that field. Although successful as a psychology student, Tim pushed through many challenges and failures in his life, almost flunking out of high school. He failed at almost every sport and was even demoted to sweeping floors in his dad's family business. In spite of this track record, Tim pushed forward and became a successful business owner and entrepreneur, even moving to the point where he became a mental skills coach. Tim knows exactly how to manage his emotions and use mindfulness to be a high achiever while still being content in his life. So, Tim, great to have you with us. What does mindfulness mean to you, man? Mindfulness means being aware of yourself, your surroundings, and other people around you, and just having that that sense of just being and and hyper-sensitive and hyper-aware and not too wrapped up in your own world. Well, it's really great not to get too wrapped up in your world, that's for sure. Part of your world is related to motocross, and I'm fascinated to talk to you about the motocross world. Tell me what your what your connection is to that world. Yeah, well, I, I grew up uh, racing motocross as an amateur, and I did that for many years with my father, and we would travel all over the United States, up and down the East Coast, and uh, I just really en- enjoyed it. However, I, I didn't have the, 
the skills or really the desire to become a professional. And, and so it's, it's kind of one of those things where once you do it, you, you kind of get it in your blood and it never leaves. And, and so after I had received my, my degree and worked in the, in the field of psychology for, for many years, and I decided to, to reach out to a local training facility that's uh, a couple hours away from where I live. And I just said, hey, you know, I used to race motocross and this is my background and training. You know, maybe there's something I can do to work with your riders. And he said, sure, come on down. And and so I said, you know what, I won't charge you anything. Let me work with one of your best guys and I'll help to improve them. No charge. And I did that with one of the best guys at that training facility. He he enjoyed it. He improved. And so the rest is history. I've been there for a couple of years now. And, and, I, and I love it. I really, it, it allows me to be connected to the sport. Um, and, you know, I'm not racing anymore, but for me to be able to almost live through these guys, because I'm working with um, professionals and amateur riders, but uh, my focus is more on, on the professional guys and who are on the, the circuit. They travel around the United States and in fact, the, the world. So they're all over the place. And a lot of the work that I do with them is is over the phone, and we will do uh, you know a, a mental skills session um, usually each week. And um, if I'm able to, I'll, I'll watch the race on television, and then we usually process the results and where they could have improved. And and uh, so I really enjoy that work. Well, that's really cool. That's really cool. Now, you've said that you you do a mental skills session. Can you share with Mindful Tribe, what does that really mean? What does that look like? Yeah, well, my focus in with these professional guys, they've got a number of areas that they need to be successful in. And um, most of them are on teams that, you know, take care of their bikes and their equipment. And I look at it as a four-legged stool. And so the team will take care of their bike and their equipment. They have typically have a physical trainer who works with them on their cardio and, and maybe even some weightlifting or whatever they're doing to, to stay in shape. They have a riding coach who works with them on technique on the track. And, and so then I come into play. And what my role is is to help them mentally to be able to increase focus and, and to be able to relax when they go into a competitions, they typically travel around to these stadiums. Many times during the Supercross season, these races are held in the football stadiums at all the NFL stadiums that they go to. They'll come in, they, they lay down plywood over the field and they, they haul in, I don't know how many tons of dirt and they build these tracks. And so then they fill these stadiums. And so you can imagine when they roll into these stadiums and they go up to the line that they are so pumped and excited. Their adrenaline is going and that can actually play against them. And so a lot of the work that I do is to help them to relax, help them to tune out everything that's going on. You know, they're shooting off uh, fireworks before the show. There's loud music. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Lots of distractions. They're signing autographs. Fans are going crazy. People are screaming in the stands. And so for them to get into their zone and stay in that zone is so important at that level. Um, a lot of them have trained their entire lives to be good at what they do, but almost nothing prepares them of what to expect when they're at that level as a professional with all the distractions and all the pressure. You know, some of these guys are, are making tons of money, hundreds of thousands, several of them are making in the millions, and there's a lot of pressure for them to perform. And they're pulled in different directions from the team, from their sponsors, 
family, friends, fans, and it just becomes overwhelming. And so I will help them to work on an area that they're really struggling with. Sometimes it's it's being able to regain their focus after they make a mistake during competition, or it might be to help them to maintain kind of a low-level heart rate. Um, I really have gotten in uh, lately into looking at their heart rate before and during an event. So they wear a heart rate monitor, help them with some deep breathing exercises, uh, utilize visualization techniques as well, get their heart rate down. And I've seen a real correlation with the guys who are the most calm going into an event perform much better. Wow, this is really, really cool. And, you know, like who doesn't want to have less anxiety, be more calm, have a lower heart rate and just be totally relaxed? And, you know, I I can't help but think back to you when you were in high school and I read a little bit about how, you know, you had a tough time, you flunked out of some courses, got really low grades and you felt like you were failing at almost every sport. Tell me more about that point in your life and how you possibly made this switch into becoming a successful psychology student and pushing through. Well, if there was a poster child for being a loser, it was me. (laughs) so to speak. I really felt that way. I grew up where in in my family that they really didn't push academics. You know, I wasn't forced Mm -hmm. to study. I was on my own. And I just, you know, I, it wasn't important. It wasn't a focus growing up in in any of the grades. And so I I struggled. Yeah, I was a, a, a C, D and F student most of my life. How I got through high school, I have no idea. I tried all the sports growing up, football, basketball, soccer, you name it. And I was just, I, I, all I did was, was keep the bench warm. And that's a real problem for kids when they're growing up and they don't feel like they fit in. Um, that's a scary moment because then you have no direction. You, you have no kind of sense of self and who you are. You need to identify with someone. And there's all these different groups that kind of pop up, in, especially in, in high school. It, it starts in, in middle school and even before that, these, these clicks. But, you know, for me, I didn't fit in with the jocks because I wasn't good in sports. I didn't fit in with, with the nerds because I wasn't smart and didn't feel smart. Um, there was no one that I really clicked with. I mean, I had friends in all groups, but I never felt like I truly belonged just to one. And I got into, to, I used to ride motorcycles a lot. And then for whatever reason, my dad gave me the opportunity to start racing. And that's where I kind of found myself. And I became pretty good. And I raced all throughout high school. I was gone many of the most weekends, you know, traveling with my dad. And that was the one thing that really lifted my, my self-esteem and, and my confidence. But you know, I still didn't have a direction academically. And it wasn't until I graduated high school. Again, I graduated at the back of my high school class. Um, I could probably look on my degree and it may say on the back, least likely to succeed. I'm sure it says that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was there was kind of scratching my head going, OK, now what? My dad said, well, if you're going to stay home, then you need to do something. And, yeah. uh, and so I said, well, I guess I'll go to the community college that's, you know, right down the road. And so I did. I I uh, signed up for some courses. I uh, took a few classes that I failed, took a few that barely passed. And then I had my first psychology class. And I remember this being the one subject and topic that caught my attention. 
And the first test that we took, I think I made like a C on the exam. And for whatever reason, it was the first time in my life that I was not happy with a C. For any all the other years I was in school, C was cool, man. That was like making an A. But oh, I yeah. liked psychology and I wanted to do better. And so I went to the instructor. I wish I remembered her name because I really want to thank her. Turn my life around. She said, Tim, I will teach you how to study. I will teach you not only how to study for this class, but I'll teach you how to study for all of your classes. And she was the first person that actually taught me how to study. I went through school all those years and I was told study hard and get good grades, but nobody actually sat down and showed me the steps of how to study. And so right. I struggled. I thought, well, if I didn't, if I can't sit in class and just listen to what the teacher says, and, and then I can't put it back on a paper during an exam, I must be an idiot. And I was so wrong. And so she had taught me some of these really, really important skills. And so I applied these techniques to the next test. And I remember coming in to class late the same day she was given the test back after she had graded them. Mm -hmm. And so I had to walk across the class. I had my head down. I was trying to scurry. She was in the middle of, of talking to the class. And she stopped me and she said, Tim. And I scratched my head. I got, oh, Okay, I'm in trouble. I'm it's late. coming. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. I'm used to this. I mean, that, that's yeah. kind of my MO. And she said, I want you to tell the class what you did. And I thought, well, crap, I don't know what I did. <laughs> and she said, because you made the highest grade in the class. You made an A. And I thought, whoa. Well, first I thought, whoa. And then I thought, there's got to be another Tim in here. There's got to be a mistake. <laughs> it ain't me. She must have made a mistake. And so before I could say anything, there was a young lady sitting in front of the class and she said, I just can't make an A in this class to save my life. I've been an honor roll student my entire life and I can't make an A in this class. So you can imagine what that did to my self-confidence. Yes. It went through the roof. I couldn't believe it. And from that day forward, I continued to apply myself with a focus on psychology. I ended up transferring uh to another university in South Carolina that was a four-year university. I did very well. I started volunteering um, in a day treatment facility with uh, adults with persistent and chronic mental illness. I loved it. I was doing that one day a week. Before I knew it, I was doing that almost five days a week with my courses, and I was working for free, and I enjoyed it more than anything oh, I'd ever wow. done for money. That is so cool. I knew if I'm doing this for free and I get this much enjoyment, this is this is for me. This is my yeah. passion. And so I continued to increase my grades. I continued to volunteer. I applied to Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey. And I have no idea why in the hell they let me in, but they let me transfer <laughs> there. And I didn't want to let them down. And let me tell you, when I got there, I made it a purpose of mine to meet the smartest and most successful kids in that school because I wanted to be one of the best instead of one of the worst because when i grew up in high school i had the best friends that were fun but let me tell you we were all losers so i wanted to change that and i changed my circle of friends got into volunteering there graduated rutgers university with honors on the dean's list and i went from least likely to succeed to graduating with honors which is almost an unheard of scenario yeah. and i don't tell people that to, to brag at, at, at all. I tell people that because if you have a focus and you believe in yourself, you can overcome whatever obstacles are out there. 
to achieve your goals and dreams. You do wow. not your your past does not equal your future. Your future equals what you do today. Get your butt in the gear, do something today. Forget about who did you wrong in the future or in the past. Forget about all the bad things that's happened to you. Forget about that you don't have the money or you think you don't have, you know, the the support system. Forget about that. What are you doing today to better your future? So many people link their past with what's going to happen tomorrow, and that's a yes. bunch of nonsense. And that is mindfulness, isn't it? Is mm-hmm. is just separating yourself from the past and just going for it. And what an inspiring story. You must motivate so many people. I'm sure you have. So once you got into your full-time career in psychology, tell me what kind of work you did then. Yeah, what. Well, once I had graduated with, with my doctorate, because I have a PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in organizational behavior. And uh, after I graduated, I worked in what you would call kind of a forensic setting. I worked with clients who uh, many of them were found incompetent, incompetent to stand trial. They had serious mental illness. They had developmental disabilities. Um, I worked with all sorts of, of offenders, um, you name it. In, in perpetrators in, in California at the time. Um, I worked with gang members, uh, street street gangs and prison gangs. I, I worked in the prison. And so I worked with some pretty tough characters. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, there there were times when, you know, they they really schooled me in the beginning. And, and I cut my teeth in, in working with, with these, these guys. And um, it was just an amazing experience. And I had never been exposed to gang culture Growing up here in South Carolina, all I knew about gangs was what I saw on MTV, you know, watching some of the rap videos. And yeah. but to really get an inside look at what it's, you know, what life is like as as a you know a true gang member. And let me tell you, in California, the gang culture runs so deep that you've got generations of family members who have been in gangs. You you think of some of the the Bloods, the Crips, and the Mexican Mafia. Some of the, the more famous and known gangs, their brothers, their grandfathers, their uncles, their great grandfather was in the, you know, in that gang. And so it's almost like when you're born into that that family, you, you, you're going down that path. And That's, so I worked with some really difficult characters for sure. Wow. So how did you immerse yourself into that at first without getting swallowed up? It must have been tough. Yeah, well, in the beginning, they I definitely felt like I was chewed up and spit out. But I was fortunate to have some great uh, supervisors. And, and one in particular was um, a, a woman by the name of Dr. Hyder, and she was fantastic. When we worked with these juveniles who had um, significant criminal histories and conduct disordered, I mean, severe behavior problems, and they were sent to this group home, and they were mandated to uh, have treatment. And so I provided their their individual therapy, their group therapy, their family therapy. I did their intakes. I did their psychological evaluations. I did A to Z work with them. And they, for the most part, did not give me or many of the other people in that facility the time of the day. But she, Dr. Heider, was the one person that gained their respect. And so I watched her and the kind of the real lesson that I learned was that she treated them fairly. Mm-hmm. And so many of the people in that facility, because they were always acting up, that's all they would focus on with these young men is how they were screwing up day in and day out, getting on them for what they're doing wrong. She took a different approach. 
before she got onto them for messing up, she actually praised them. She would find something good that they had done. And so that way they could take their medicine, so to speak, and digest what she was telling them that they needed to improve on. So for instance, let's say Billy, you know, Billy had snuck out of the group home and went down the street and tried to steal a car, which, you know, was something that happened. Um, and she would say, she'd bring him into his office and I got to sit there and she said, Billy, she said, I want to tell you that you did such a fantastic job at the group home this week, helping out, you know, with cleaning the dishes and doing the chores and you actually helped your roommate. And I want to commend you on doing that. However, right now I want to talk about this issue of you sneaking out. So see at that moment, she stroked their ego a little bit. Mm -hmm. She Mm -hmm. built them up because a lot of times they're used to being torn down. Yes. And so she would, she knew that they had fragile egos. And so she would go to that. She would always give them something positive and they could accept. Now they didn't always like what they heard from her as far as, you know, what she wanted to them to improve, but they always respected her. And so I took that, that message and, and that lesson and I applied it to all the people that I worked with in the future. That's very cool. Yeah. And, and we can use that same technique with with our employees, with our children, whoever. I know I, I'm working with a lot of students in schools when I teach mindfulness concepts and go in and do anti-bullying work. And I really zero in on the underdog. If I, if I go in there and I see somebody, I think, you know what? I think that kid may be a kid that causes problems or he's a potential leader that is being knocked down for being a disturber. And that's the, the one I focus on and, and do very much like what you're describing. And it just seems to turn the tables entirely and you get the whole group kind of with you. So I really like how you described that. So I wonder if you have anything in your own personal life like meditation or what do you personally do to calm yourself down and to get yourself into that state? Well, a couple of things that, that help me, a few strategies is one is, is deep breathing mm-hmm. for me to be able, and, and I call it the, the belly breaths. You know, many people get the breathing uh, technique wrong. They, they often breathe in the upper part of their chest. And the way you know they're doing that is when they take a deep breath in, their shoulders kind of go up. Right. We have this whole area, this diaphragm, diaphragmatic area in the, in the lower region. And I call it belly breathing. Mm-hmm. And so for me to take a good deep breath in through my nose and I fill that whole lower cavity up and then I hold it for a moment and then exhale slowly. And I'll do this maybe three or four times. And in the morning is a great time to do it when I, before I get going with my, through my day in the middle of the day to help me to kind of reset, so to speak. It's almost Mm -hmm. like uh, turning off your computer and then turning it back on. It kind of resets, it gets rid of the clutter and it helps me mentally. And I also, there's a physiological effect that happens. I mean, it takes that oxygen to all the the regions of, of your body. And so you get a physiological response from that, but mentally it clears those cobwebs and it helps you to be able to kind of see things that you didn't see before. You know, when, when you're stressed, when you're overwhelmed with things going on in life, to be able to take those breaks, take those deep breaths. I also like to retreat. You know, I'm, I'm out there, I work with people 
uh, you know, I have training in psychology, and this will probably surprise people. I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. People may be scratching their head going, how can you be a psychologist as <laughs> yes. an introvert? Yes. But let me tell you, my natural instinct, and this is how you can tell whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, is how do you get your batteries recharged? When you've had a long day, do you like to go and retreat and be alone for a little while? Or do you like to get energized and go out with a group of friends or get together with family members? The introverts will retreat. They'll go into kind of a room by themselves. They'll get away. They'll take a walk by themselves. They need to be able to recharge their batteries that way. Extroverts, they get recharged by being around other people. Being alone and being by themselves is not a way that they recharge their battery. So for me, I enjoy being around people. I enjoy talking. I enjoy communication. I think I'm excellent at nonverbal skills and verbal skills, you know, written, all the different forms of communication. But at some point during the day, I get drained and I need to withdraw. So a couple of times a day for about 30 minutes, I just I turn off my phone. I take a walk. When I come home at the end of the day, my wife knows that I just need to sit for 30 minutes by myself and just not really be bothered. And then I come out and I'm, I'm ready to go again. And okay. so that's how I kind of get recharged. How, that's how I get into the more mindful state. Very interesting. Tim, I know that a few years ago you decided to sell everything and move to Costa Rica. Can you tell us about why you did that and what that was like for you? That, that was one of the best experiences in my life. And when I was going through that, people around me, my friends, family, and colleagues thought I was the biggest idiot. They thought I was the one that needed medication and not the patients that I was working with. And it all started back in 2005. My brother and I were planning a surfing trip, and he, he would come out to California typically once a year, and we would surf up and down the coast of California. And then in 2005, he said, let's do something different. Let's go to Costa Rica. I didn't even know where Costa Rica was. I had to look on the map. Right. And I said, uh, I think they speak Spanish there. I don't speak Spanish, man. And he goes, well, I do. I remember it from high school. He said, it'll be fun. They have some of the best waves in the world. I said, cool, I'm there. So we planned a trip. We went down to Costa Rica, and it was a blast. And we went mm -hmm. to several different little beach towns. We rented a 4 by 4 We drove through the jungles. We got stuck in the mud. We we just had a, had a blast. And one particular wow. little uh, beach town we stopped in, um, we stayed for a couple of days, and the first night we were there, we went into this restaurant, and my brother went to the restroom. I sat at the table, and I looked over, and there was a, a beautiful young lady sitting at the next table, and she was there by herself, and I'm typically very shy, mm -hmm. but I, for whatever reason, I said, hey, how are you doing? You know, My name is Tim. I'm from the United States, and I went on and on and on talking. I probably talked for about five or ten minutes, and then she looked up at me, and she said something in Spanish, and I went, she didn't understand a darn word I said to her. <laughs> so then I was starting to sweat. Then my brother came back from the bathroom and I said, hey, use your Spanish, man. I'm trying to talk to her. And so he translated. We went out. We had dinner. We went dancing. And we, in fact, lost each other We before we were able to exchange contact information. I looked for her for the next couple of nights. Couldn't find her. The last night we were there, I went back into that restaurant. She happened to be there also looking for me. We switched information, went back to California, 
every week I was using these programs to translate English uh, emails. We were sending emails back and forth. I started going to Costa Rica almost every month for a couple of days to visit her. And that was in 2000, 2005. And so by the end of 2005, I said, I'm moving to Costa Rica. I'm going to marry this young lady. And at the time, I'd already had my doctorate degree. I was working for the state of California. I was already in the pension program. I had the cars. I had everything that I had worked for and that I wanted, the house, you name it. But it was just me. There was something missing in my life. Hmm. And so I decided I was going to sell everything and quit my job. And let me tell you, people were floored around me. They mm -hmm. said, what? You're, you're doing? You're moving where? You're selling everything. You just got into your career. Are you crazy? What is going on with you? I said, trust me. I said, it's just, I, I have that intuition. This is what I need to do. And I never want to look back and question, what if? Right. Know, what if? And so I moved down there in January, the first week of January of, of um, 2006. And it was incredible. I was on that, that plane. I had a couple of suitcases. Everything else was sold or given away. And I, I just felt free. For the first time, I felt free. And I'm like, man, no longer I'm going to a job that, that I hate. I don't have to worry about the 5 o'clock whistle. There was no such thing as 5 o'clock there. Every day just went into another day. Every mm. day was Friday for nine months that I stayed there. <laughs> and I explored the jungles, the beaches. I surfed. I bought some property while I was there. And, and it was just incredible. I mean, I spent my days. I even went to a coffee plantation and picked coffee beans for a day with the with the day laborers. That's a whole other story. Um, but we also got married in Costa Rica. And when my friends and family and colleagues came down and they saw how happy I was and that I wasn't kidnapped in the jungles somewhere, <laughs> being held captive yeah, or running around naked or whatever, they said, my God, you were right. And they met my wife. They loved her. They fell in love with her. They fell in love with Costa Rica. And I, and I had a good friend who, who was pretty critical of me going in the first place. And he said, Tim, he said, I just want to tell you, I, I apologize. He said, I wasn't supportive, but it wasn't about you. It was about me because I would be so afraid to do something so bold as to sell everything and move to Costa Rica. This is exactly what I would love to do in my dreams, but I could never manage to do it. And it was, it was about my fear and not about you. And that really put it into perspective. The majority of the people around me had nothing to do with me. It was about them. Mm. And then they, people had to look at their own self and say, wow, well, I know Tim. He's following his dreams. Well, what am I doing? You know, I'm, hmm. doing, I'm in the same drudgery every day. And right. so misery loves, loves company. And so those people would love to kind of keep you back with them. But when, when I had that, that conversation with, with my buddy, that really put it in perspective. It was nothing about me. It was all about them and not wanting me to go and thinking that I was crazy. Wow, you are an amazing storyteller, Tim. And I'll <laughs> bet you have a story about being bullied or someone in your life. Do you have a story like that, bullying? You know, well, I, I, again, when I grew up, I don't think I had any issues with bullying with bullies until maybe high school. I got along with everyone. I, I kind of made it a point to have friends in all the different groups. But yeah, there, there were times when in, in high school, you know, because I really wasn't in one of the, the so-called cliques and I wasn't in the cool group um, that, that I might get targeted and, you know, kids might say something. 
But for the most part, I got along with everyone. There was probably maybe one or two people that, that I didn't. Um, but, you know, I didn't have any real issues. But I'll tell you, when, when, bullying, when bullies go after someone and they target their victims, you know, a lot of times it's about the bully. It's not about the victim. Yes. And the victims often will look in, at themselves and go, what's wrong with me? What's so bad about me that they pick on me? And they will often internalize it. And so in working with you know, adolescents who have been bullied to a, a really high level, they, they turn that anger inward. And many times they will sometimes get into cutting themselves and self-harm and these really deep down negative thoughts about themselves. Yes. And, and that's the real, the real danger with, with bullies is, is that, that mental impact that they make. You know, okay, maybe they, they give you a wedgie or they put you in a headlock and Mm-hmm. you know, or punch you or something. But, you know, that kind of stuff, the, the bruises and whatnot goes away. But the mental, the, the mental scarring of that is is what is the real dangerous part with, with bullies and, and the impact of that. And so to really help victims understand that it's not about you as a victim, it's about them. And don't internalize that negativity about yourself. And, and that's what often happens with victims. Yeah, it truly does. Tim, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Easy answer would be my dad. Uh, My dad, and I didn't realize it growing up, but I realized it when he passed away in in 2012. Let me tell you, this, this is a subject that's hard for me to talk about, so... And I'm definitely not going to be one of the guests that will cry on the show, <laughs> but I could be if I go into it too long. So I'm glad it's only 30 seconds. But anyway, reflecting on my dad and his life, he was so giving. He was always aware of everyone around him. Mm. And, and he was an entrepreneur. He owned his own business. He gave to his employees. He gave to everyone, even strangers. He loved to go up and talk. He was always aware of the impact he had on other people. And he was always curious about how other people were doing. And in fact, the day that he passed away from a heart attack, my mom was with them and she was telling me a story. They had walked out of a restaurant and he had just met a stranger and he'd pat him on the, on the back on the way out. And he said, I hope you have a good day. It was great talking to you. Maybe I'll see you again. You know, and, and it just shakes me up, man. Wow. (laughs) So it's my dad. Wow. 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 What a great guy. Wow. What a great influence for you. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Tim? It's helped me to keep things in check. It's, it's helped me to regulate my thoughts and my emotions because I'm a, I'm a practitioner of, of the cognitive behavioral therapy, which is your thoughts really control your emotions and your emotions control your behavior. Being able to utilize deep breathing and being able to relax yourself to help you analyze situations more clearly helps you when you see them more clearly, you you have less intense emotion and your reaction and behavior then is, is much better. And so when people aren't very mindful, they have these negative thoughts that impacts others, that impacts how they feel, and then their behaviors negatively impact others and themselves. The next question is about breathing, and you've already detailed the belly breath. Can you just sum it up in a few seconds? Yeah, belly breathing is, for me, it's one of probably the go-to tool. It's where you, you take in that deep breath through your nose, 
you fill that lower diaphragm, you hold it, you exhale, do that a couple of times. It helps to kind of restart and kind of just erase everything that's going on and put you in a neutral state. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would that be? You know, I haven't read an entire book since I got out of graduate school. Graduate school ruined me. I <laughs> swore I wouldn't touch a book for a long time after Is that I graduated. Right? <laughs> I, I will only read bits and pieces of articles. I will pick up books and read read parts of it. But as far as having time or, or even a desire to read a whole book, I, I, I don't. So I, I, I'm sorry to leave you hanging, but I, I don't have anything that, that I could recommend. No problem. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful or more organized or more focused? For me, I'm more mindful when my day is less cluttered and I'm sure. less distracted. And I, it's a program I believe you use as well as Schedule Once. Yes. And Schedule Once is wonderful because I can send a link out to people who want to connect and set up a time with me. And they can look at my calendar. They can do it themselves. I don't have to go back and forth. Right. I get a notice when they've scheduled in that particular day, and it's good. I don't have to worry about it. So it helps me to focus on more important things. Yeah, I totally agree. Schedule once works for me as well. Tim, it has really, really been awesome to spend this time talking with you. I can't wait to meet you in person, hopefully at Pod PodFest Multimedia yes. Expo in Orlando. That would be amazing. I can't wait. So anyway, how can Mindful Tribe connect with you, learn more about what you do? Yeah, they can go to timlaskus.com. And that's my new website. It's currently under construction, but there are some videos and some information about me. Uh, my email is tim at timlaskus.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under Tim Laskus. Cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing this really inspirational interview with, with our listeners. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Tim. Have a good rest of your day. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Bruce. Okay, bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. Oh, and don't forget, I really care what you think. If you would fill in that easy three-question survey I mentioned, I would really appreciate it. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash survey three. Survey three, S-U-R-V-E-Y, and then just a three. I'll put that in the show notes as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you're listening on. For show notes, check out mindfulnessmode.com. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness.